Please join me as we look at Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each who had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thanks. Good morning. Four years ago, Cecilia Jimenez of Borja, Spain, 81 years old, saw that the picture of Christ in their little church was beginning to chip and fade, as in the middle picture here. So she decided she would save the church some money and reconstruct it, fix it herself. And as you can see, this is how it ended up. She kind of stepped beyond the bounds of her abilities. (laughs) She was well-intentioned but ended up terribly distorting the face of Christ so that he's no longer recognizable. As you can imagine, social media had quite a uh, lot of fun with this, and they dubbed this picture of Christ the monkey Christ. In our passage, as it's set in the first century, in that first century, when Jesus came and the church was began to expand, the Jewish world had so distorted the picture of who God is to the world that they had no idea what God really looked like. All they could see when they looked at the Jewish world was rules and regulations and condemnation and judgment and divisions and power struggles and all kinds of things that distorted the face of Christ, the face of God to the world. So in that milieu of confusion about who God is, God sent Jesus to reveal who God really was. It was completely different than what they thought because the face of God had been so distorted. So Jesus revealed who God really was, but he only walked on the earth for three years And then Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. And he's now working through the church. He sent the Holy Spirit. So now the church is the face of God on earth. Get this. You and I, as the church, part of the church, are meant to be the image of God. The picture of God to a world that has no idea what God really looks like. The book of Acts shows how the early church was living this out, living out the image of God in a way that people were saying, wow, 
If that's what God is like, I want to be part of it. I want to know him. The book of Acts is amazing as it reveals what God looked like to the world. But it leaves us today with this question. How well are we picturing Jesus? When people look at our personal lives, but also our community of faith here at Cole, but beyond as well, the believers in America and throughout the world, what kind of face of God are they seeing? A clear one or a distorted one? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, uh, whew, this is challenging for us. You've given us an incredible privilege to be able to represent you as the image of God to the world. But, wow, we have to admit we're not real good at that. But as we look at this passage today and see how the early church was picturing to the world who you really are, may, may it begin to grip our hearts so that we might be the kind of people that show you to the world, the real you, the accurate you, not a distorted, false view of you. Lord, your word is powerful. Use your word in our hearts this morning, this living word to transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what did God look like? Well, in the early church, we see the first thing that they showed to the world about God was that he was one. He was a unity. Notice verse 32. In the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. Again, the religious world of, of that day, when the church was just emerging as this new community of faith, was really confused about God's unity. They had no idea. <laughs> of course, they were living under the Roman rule, and the Romans had a pantheism of gods. They had many, many gods, many temples, gods everywhere. And if you really wanted God's blessing, you had to figure out which God to please for one particular thing or another and do a sacrifice and try to get on that God's good side to make them happy so you can get blessed. The Jews said the Shema regularly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They said that regularly, and yet what they demonstrated to the world around them were all these different groups and sects that competed for power. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes etc. They were all deeply divided in their theologies and in their view of how to please God, and they were deeply divided in their politics. They strongly condemned anyone who disagreed with them. They taught and spoke of God's oneness, but they lived out an image of God that was distorted and twisted and didn't show forth that God was truly one. They showed a divided God who was narrow and condemning and judgmental of others who disagreed. They were so divided in their politics that within a few years, some of them supported a rebellion against the Romans and others supported the Romans and they fought against each other and they ended up being destroyed as a country. 
But here in the book of Acts, the Acts, remember, of Jesus, this is what Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is all about Jesus and what he's doing. (laughs) Jesus is restoring the image of God to his people and in his people by creating a oneness in the power of the Spirit. It says they were one of one heart and one soul. Remember, these were about, as far as we know at this point, 5,000 people had come to Christ. They were meeting together, but they were all from different countries, different cultures, different languages, different political views, different family views, and so forth. And yet they were one of heart and one of spirit. How could that be? How could that be? Well, it says one in heart and soul, heart and soul. That's internal, right? That's not outward conformity. They didn't look the same on the outside. They didn't even do the same things to a large extent. There wasn't an outward conformity, but it was an inner oneness that transcended all those outward differences. So that those things, though they were still there, weren't really very important. They were one of heart and soul. There's two biblical metaphors. There's others as well, but I want to highlight two biblical metaphors that the scriptures use to describe the church that help us, I think, understand how this oneness worked. The family and the physical body. The family and the physical body, that we are a family, brothers and sisters, loving each other, as we just sang. That we are a family together. That there's an internal oneness that bonds us together. Some of you have heard me tell a story before. When I was a boy, there were four Kramer boys. And we played often with the seven Raleigh brothers. So we had enough people to play baseball games and football games and all kinds of stuff. We just loved hanging out together. But the Raleigh boys didn't get along real well together. Periodically, they'd get into a fight between two of them, you know, and then there was this temptation to take sides. And if if I jumped in on the side of one of the brothers, guess what happened? Pretty soon you had seven Raleigh's against you. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm just trying to be helpful here. But there was an internal oneness that transcended everything else because the Raleigh's were Raleigh's and the Raleigh's stick together. And we're not letting anything come between us. Yeah, we may have a spat or two, but that doesn't divide us because we are family. We're all children of Jesus, right? Sons and daughters of the king. He's our father. He saved us. He's adopted us in. We're his children. And therefore, you and I have an internal oneness as family together that transcends all our differences. We are one. And the early church got it. (laughs) They got it. See, that oneness became more important than all that other stuff, all those differences. And the other metaphor, the body, physical body. We're all one thing. We're all one body under a head, Jesus Christ, who is the head. So we all share the same lifeblood that flows through every one of us in the power of his spirit. We are all one Body, we're one thing under his command, and therefore that bonds us together and ties us together 
in a way that can't be separated. If you cut me off from you, can't be around you, or I cut you off from me, then the body is damaged. It's broken. It can't function like it's meant to function. (laughs) The body's no longer whole. So when I look at you or you look at me, with all our differences, the most important thing about us is that we are one. One family, one body that's been created by God, and therefore we have a connectedness that we must be careful to preserve no matter what, Ephesians tells us. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that God will be seen as he really is. As one. As a unity. Three in one. Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet one God in perfect harmony working together. We've all been saved by Jesus and he's now our head. So the early church, people looked at him and they go, wow. Isn't this amazing? There's oneness when there's no oneness anywhere else in the world. No true oneness, but there is here in the church, in the body of Christ. The world's tried really hard to achieve that kind of oneness, hasn't it? But it can't do it because it only comes through the oneness of being created by Jesus himself into one body, one family. So God is unity in diversity. And the body of Christ is unity in diversity. We're different and yet we're all one. And that oneness ties us together and reveals to the world what God is like. Isn't that great? But I think we have to ask, (laughs) how are we doing in this? How are we doing in this? Not so good. You know, the world itself is a mess. The world's deeply divided. Midterm elections are this week, and there's all these threats about, boy, if it goes one way, the other side's just going to be terribly angry, and there's going to be a battle. And in fact, just this week in the New York Times, it said the current climate of division is so pervasive that in a report to be released this week, the Simon Wiesenthal Center found that more than 40% of Americans almost half. 40% of Americans believe the country is headed to a civil war. That's where our nation is. And how are we doing as churches? Are we doing better? Well, not great. I see us deeply divided politically and in other ways. And I'll just say this is heartbreaking for me, but, but several have come to me. And said, you know what, because because you don't do what I think you should do politically. Whatever it is, both ends of the spectrum, stuff in between. Because you don't do what I think you should do politically, I'm leaving coal. I can't fellowship with you. And sometimes it's other reasons. There can be good reasons to leave. I'm not saying there can't be. God can call someone away. But when it's over these kinds of issues, I just have to say that that's tragic. That's tragic. And it it distorts the face of Jesus to the world. I just think we have to be careful and learn to not be angry and divided and judgmental. and, And so the world says, oh, that's what God's like. 
Huh. Oh, he's judgmental. Why would I want to get to know him? So how do we get back on track? (laughs) Well, get our eyes on Jesus, right? See him as what bonds us together and begin... Once we get our eyes on Jesus, then those other things that tend to divide us, that make us look at each other and, huh, gee, that's, I can't be around you. That's too irritating. That's too problematic. When you're looking at Jesus, all those things just kind of begin to fade into the background. Augustine said, to be true friends, you must love the same thing. Allred wrote in the 1100s, Christian friendship is two people together with Christ as their bond. Two people together with Christ as their bond. To, to look and say, Jesus bonds us together. We are one. And that's the most important thing about you. And that's the most important thing about me. We're children of God. Now, I know some of you have been deeply hurt. I've been deeply hurt. <laughs> and I've hurt others. But if our focus is on Jesus, we can live out Colossians chapter 3, where he lays out for us, I think, a picture of how we can begin to get along. Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, because you're, you're new people, you're in Jesus. That's your identity. That's who you really are. That's your identity, far more than your political persuasion or anything else, because you've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Putting up with one another. (laughs) The irritations. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. There'll always be things to forgive. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. When we get our eyes on Christ and begin to put on the new nature in Christ, who he really is, and put on love, then everything else begins to fade away. This summer, I had the privilege of traveling with Rescued and got to sing in the choir over there that was 62 checks. And me. (laughs) And here I wrote about my experience. The songs were powerfully moving for me. And the experience of singing with others who barely spoke English. Yet we were one in Christ. Singing of him and his glory together was amazing. And when one of us messed up. (laughs) We covered one another and helped each other get back on note. This was an incredible picture for me of the body of Christ and the oneness we share in him. Though we come from different cultures and speak different languages, being focused on Jesus and worshiping him created a deeper oneness than would be possible otherwise. God is one. He's unified. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in John 17, Jesus prayed for us. Remember his final prayer before he went to the cross? Starting at verse 20, John 17, 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He'd been praying for the disciples there. 
But for those who believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do they see oneness in us? Secondly, in this passage, what we see about God that was being lived out and imaged in the early church was generosity. God is generous. Let me read that again, verse, the end of verse 32. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him, was, belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The Roman view of the gods was that they were selfish, demanding. You must give them what they want or they will punish you. Unfortunately, the Pharisees and others exhibited a similar view of God. God's demanding you have to keep the rules or you're in big trouble. But the early church revealed the true face of Jesus who gave his life for us who God the Father sent his son to die and carry all our sins. He didn't have to do that, but he did it because God is generous with his love. His amazing love we just sang about is so powerful. God gave all for us. And the early church showed that in how they used their possessions. What was the key? I think it's in verse 32. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property. Uh, when, they, when it says not a, any of them claimed that what they had was their own, here's the question. Whose was it? Whose was it? It says they, they had common property. They shared their things. They would sell their fields or property to bless others who were needy. But I think the key is understanding that everything I have is not mine, but it's not everybody else's either to just take what they want. It's God's. Everything I have is God's. And he can do with it what he wants. If I'm clinging to it and keeping it from the uses he has for us, then I won't look very generous. I won't show God to be who he really is. I'll show a distorted view of God. The proper attitude is everything I have is God, so he can do with it what he pleases. And brothers and sisters, that's a wonderful way to live. (laughs) It's exciting. Because God loves to be generous with his stuff. (laughs) Jeannie and I were really young in the faith. We hadn't been married too long. We got married. We moved to Moscow. And we were able to buy a house. Small house, cheapest thing we could find in town. Needed a lot of work, but we were able to buy a house. We lived in it for four years, and in those four years, 
We did several upgrades. We did a lot of work on it, and it was kind of a cute little house. It had obviously increased in value, but then we were moving away, so we needed to sell it. And as we were thinking and praying about it, God kept laying another young family in our church on our hearts who lived in a rundown trailer, and there's no way they could have ever bought a house without a lot of help. And we were really trying to say, Lord, everything we have is yours. And what we heard God saying was, well, then give them the house. But we don't have any money, God. We need some equity out of this thing. And, and God was saying, give them the house. It's mine. It's not yours. So we gave them the house of what was still owed on the note. They were barely able to make the payment for that. But they bought the house and we went on and God kept saying, we're going to I'm going to take care of you. And he has always taken care of us. We just had the joy of watching God bless that family. Well, what's interesting is we lost track of that family for 30 years. And last week we ran into them. First thing they said to us. Thank you for giving us your house. You don't know how much God used that to bless us. And they began to tell the story of how it blessed their family and their kids. And I don't take any credit for that because I wouldn't have done that. (laughs) God did it. God's generous with his own stuff. The question is, are we holding it for ourselves or are we letting him have it? And letting God do with it what he wants. That's what was happening in the early church. It wasn't like they were just giving everything away so they had nothing. No, they were being wise. But, but anything extra they had, they said, this is God's. And God, if you want to use it to meet needs and care for the poor, it's yours. And you know what it showed God to be? An incredibly generous God. How we look at and use our possessions reveals who God is to the world. Is he grasping? Give me? Or is he generous? To a fault. (laughs) And then it gives the example of Barnabas. Barnabas sold a field and it says, laid the money at the apostles' feet so that needy could use it. And what's interesting about that is that I think that was a beginning point for Barnabas to just give his life, give what he had over to God. And later in the book of Acts, we see how Barnabas was the only one who went to grab Paul when he said he'd come to Christ, but nobody trusted him. And he reached out to him with compassion and brought him in and started him off in ministry. And then he he had compassion on John Mark and he had an incredible impact on the early church. But it all began with simply surrendering his possessions to God. How are we doing today with generosity? Now, I love this church, and I love how generous many of you are, and that's fabulous. That's incredible. But we have to admit, for some of us, generosity is kind of hard. Um, Our culture teaches us so much to be consumers and to depend on our money and, and, and to put our trust in our money. It's so easy to do, as Gary Thomas says, some of us deeply fear losing our money and we react with panic and anger if it's threatened. 
Others of us are driven by greed to always have a little bit more. And we will sacrifice some of our most intimate relationships to make more time and energy available to procure more money. Gary writes, I have seen some literally sacrifice their health and peace of mind to bring just a little bit more into what already looks like an abundant pile of resources. For still others of us, we're driven by a simple selfishness that insists what's mine is mine and are robbed of the tremendous joy found in giving. A few blessed souls have found that generosity with money brings great, great freedom. How do we change? Well, we have to begin to see everything we have as God's, to use as he wishes. And let me warn you, though, he's a generous God. (laughs) He will use what you have to bless others. But it is a joyous way to live. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And then third, the early church, I think, highlighted who God is, that he is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Verse 33, I skipped over that. I want to go back. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. What does God look like? Like Jesus is Lord. Notice what their testimony was about. This is their testimony. They're testifying to the people and grace was everywhere and many were coming to Christ. What were they testifying of? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is risen from the dead and he is Lord of all. He's Lord over everything. He's Lord over the nations. Let me just say that is a incredibly political statement. I know often we don't like talking about politics, but it just is because they were saying Caesar is not Lord. And in the Roman Empire, you had to say Caesar is Lord or you could be in big trouble. And they were saying Caesar's not Lord. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. Lord over all the nations, because if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not The early church had a clear sense that Jesus is Lord and that we as believers follow a different master than the world around us. And as you read the New Testament through the book of Acts on into the uh, which covered a huge time in the Roman Empire, quite a few years, 35 years or so. And then throughout the New Testament books and all that, it's interesting to me that they didn't really seem to care who was the emperor at any particular time. They didn't really seem to care who was king over Judea. They didn't really seem to care who ruled over Philippi. They didn't really seem to care about all that. All they cared about was that it doesn't matter who's in power, Jesus is Lord. And we're going to follow him no matter what. That was their testimony. And I just want to make a comment about that. You know, today, when we talk about giving our testimony, what do we talk about? Well, we generally talk about, here's what Jesus has done for me. And there's really a place for that. And and that's good to some degree. But I'm afraid what happens, at least sometimes when we say, well, here's what Jesus has done for me, 
the impression on people that we're telling that to is, oh, so Jesus is one therapeutic option for making our lives better, like yoga or counseling or Prozac or acupuncture. He's another option. It's good to say what God has done in your life, but at some point we have to say, yeah, and you know what? Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And if he is Lord, he died for you, so you owe him your allegiance. And I am learning to submit to him as Lord and follow him as Lord. Will you? So that, so that people will know that Jesus is really Lord and not just some other therapeutic option out there. Um, what's our testimony? I want to show you that picture again. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? We are here, the church is here to show the world who God is, who he really is. How are we doing? (laughs) How about my life? How am I doing? How are you doing? When people look at us, what do they see? A distorted view of God and who Jesus is? Or are they seeing what he really looks like? The early church was revealing a clear picture of who God is by the way they lived as one. By the way they were generous with their possessions. By the way they declared him and lived as though he is Lord of all. We're one family, one body. We're, we're all one. Cherith Nordling went to a conference last week and she said something very interesting. She said this. We are the movie preview for the life that is coming. We are the movie preview for the life that is coming. I guess the question for us is, when people see the preview, (laughs) are they getting a clear picture of what the movie really is about? Are they getting a clear picture of who God is? So they really want to see the rest of the movie (laughs) and live in eternity with that kind of God? What is the world seeing when it looks at us? Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, challenging. Challenging passage as it shows us a clear image of you and how we as the church can, can make a picture of you by how we live in a way that people will be drawn to it and want to see the rest of the movie. They want to know you for who you really are and Lord, in those areas we're not doing so well at in our own individual lives, whether it's we're not too good at unity or we're not too good at generosity or we're not too good at exalting you as Lord. I just pray that we would go to you and humble ourselves before you and, and let you begin to transform us more and more into the image of the living God so that others might know who you really, really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.